coming up on this episode of Belief Hole. For centuries, dark stories of unusual events have been whispered around campfires in the wilderness of North America. From strange stories of lurking creatures to the unusual clusters of unexplained disappearances to the countless folk tales and unsettling native lore that shroud the landscapes of these majestic regions. These luring places of mysterious beauty have become our national parks. What dark secrets do they hide? What strange power might they conceal? The trail is laid thick with danger and whispers of the unknown. So grab your compass and triple check your firearm as we venture deep into the heart of the belief hole and explore the National Park's containment theory. Synchronicity, Sasquatch, Homunculus, Alien Races, Satanism in Hollywood, MK Ultra, Tartaria. There's like a whole. I've been watching this one guy. Close like, the door, injury. Close your door. What's the uh, inner earth disagreements? Ghost Dad. <laughs> I like that movie. Dogman, Bohemian Grove, Corey Feldman, Magicians are demons, Spectres, Spirits, Sleep Paralysis, Strange Disappearances, Sky Whale Phenomena, yes. Alternative History, Shadow People. Shh, quiet, I'm trying to say words with the mouth. It's getting dicey out there. Poltergeists. That's cool. Anunnaki. What is the moon? <laughs> Elf Towers. I would never talk about it. That's old. Y2K. Cover ups. Apocalyptic catastrophe. Vampire. Well, hello, hello. Hi. Welcome to Bleeful. I'm Jeremy. I'm John. And I'm Chris. And we've got a great episode for you today. We do. We're in a new place. Yes, we're in a new studio. We're pretty excited about it. It's pretty cool. I have room to walk around behind Chris without knocking a sound panel off the wall. So that's helpful. That's good. So welcome in. Yes. We're excited to be here. Welcome to be here. What are we doing, Jer? Okay, so today... Today, my friends, is going to be a pretty special episode. What I'm bringing up today, it's a bit of the crazy corner, right? It's a bit of my crazy corner. This episode will be rampant with speculation and conjecture, two of my favorite things. Um, (laughs) But it's something that we have to do to present a theory. Mm -hmm. Now, any theory in my mind is something, well, an Einstein quote, right? Imagination is more important than knowledge. And I I don't know if that's how I'm attributing it is correct, but I I used to have it on, on a poster, so... I remember that. You were such a cool kid. I was not. Um, what I always attribute that to is in order to prove a theory or discover anything new in science, you need to have the imagination to speculate, hypothesize a, a possible scenario. So that's what we're doing today. You certainly are on this one. I guess I should tell you what it's about. It's about what I call containment theory. Specifically with regards to the national parks. Now this ties in the concept of missing four and one, strange disappearances, paranormal phenomena, supernatural creatures. But before I lay all this out, I just want to say, well, firstly, we're going to get comments we always do when it comes to missing four and one, because we tend to laugh in our show and have a good time. People think we don't take seriously people that go missing. Obviously we do. Right. It's a very serious subject, but we're exploring an aspect of that phenomena tied to other things that I think is, is really intriguing and can be pretty compelling. Yeah. And again, this is a, an out of the box theory. You were not making any claims of certainty, obviously. This right. is, I think, an interesting new angle on it. 
Yes, it's a way to potentially explain why there are these clusters of missing people. And wh- how'd you come across this idea? You mentioned it a few episodes yeah. ago, but I remember... Well, okay, so this idea occurred to me, but it's like anything else. People have the same idea at the same time in different places. It was my idea, and then I see it... It was on an episode of American Horror Story. They did like mini episodes. Oh, and one right. of the episodes, which I, I didn't think was great, but the, the concept shocked me because that's what I've been talking about, was specifically national parks hiding something, trying to contain control. Right, like the national parks being formed as a structure to hide secrets within the park. Yeah, if you want, I'll just break down kind of my bullet points, the structural underpinning of this theory. Just Are so you going to explain why you think it is? Too? Yes, I will. That, and that will get us into the heart of the episode. But just to lay it out, the concept, the theory suggests that the parks were initially created in part potentially to mitigate the consequences or effects of specific unexplained phenomena in these special places. Specific phenomena that may or may not be triggered by geological phenomena, such as the volcanoes, geysers, magnetic fields maybe, the cave systems that branch out throughout the United States that have not been fully tracked, that populate in a lot of the parks, that connect with these sightings of creatures, people going missing. It's kind of the big theory of everything for this kind of strange phenomena, all tied around national parks, and the idea that maybe that's why these parks were initially put into place, and we're going to get into that. We're going to get into a little bit of the history of when these parks started. I'm going to suggest some potential realities around the beginning of the parks, but with just little nodes of interest that could suggest why maybe there's a deeper reality to that. So that's going to be interesting. Is it sort of like the house in 12 Ghosts? 13 ghosts? 13 ghosts. <laughs> 13. You know, the house was like a containment unit for all those ghosts. Yeah, yeah. Except the only difference is, great movie, by the way, with yeah, Matthew Lillard. I know. I just wanted to say that because it's such a good movie. Such a good movie. I watched it a couple weeks ago. Such a good movie. And Matthew gonna, Lillard had spit coming out of his mouth. Like, I think they hired the, the spit first and then Matthew Lillard because <laughs> every movie. He's awesome. He's great, though. But so it is in the sense that. Yeah, there's a containment area. There, even Cabin in the Woods was a movie that had this kind of concept, which is actually a pretty good movie. Great movie. Joss Whedon, I think. But it's different in that in that movie, the house was built for that purpose, right? Well, it was built, to, spoiler alert, to conjure at the, at the end of the film to get all these people together to sacrifice. It's a whole thing that leads up to the third act where, as in you're talking about, is there's a discovery made that there's maybe something going on at Yellowstone, for example. Exactly. Let's do some governmental overreach. Let's lock Take this some down. land, lock it down, and subvert the information getting out that there are strange things in these areas of our world. Right. And I know this requires a lot of suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Okay, so bear with me for that. But I think it is a really interesting idea. I would but, say colorful. Colorful. I mean, obviously it ties into some very not fun things right. like disappearances and tragedy. Absolutely. But I think the concept is interesting and colorful. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So what if our great hunter of a president, Theodore Teddy Roosevelt, what if when he established the national park system in 1900-something in my notes, 1916, what if when he did that, yes, of course he was a conservationist. He was a naturalist since he was young. He was a sickly child and then ended up outdoors and falling in love with it. And he's got the bona fides to prove that he loved nature. He, it was probably not his idea if this is the reality behind it. Was he co-opted? Was he knowing that if this is real, that this was something that needed to be locked down? Because let's just imagine that when he enacted the, it's called now the Organic Act to create the national park system, creating these national parks around the country, what if the purpose was to contain what indigenous people have been sharing traditions and stories about for generations, hundreds and hundreds of years, settlers' experiences. Trappers, settlers experiencing these things that link to that strange phenomena, highly experienced in those places, in these now parks. 
And of course, that's not to say that this stuff doesn't exist outside of the parks. They do. But what if the reason, besides the natural beauty and all that, is because there is this phenomenon so often experienced there. If you can keep people out, if you can control the area, why wouldn't you do that if you did discover something like this? And we have to consider the time. It was a, it was a monstrous time in the sense that the late 1800s, early 1900s, you look at any newspaper and of course you could say it's all, you know, higgledy-piggledy, hodgepodge. Ga-ga-ga. ga Exactly. It's a good way to put it. <laughs> Your old John appears. <laughs> what, you know, you could say that it was all made up to sell newspapers, but there are so many accounts, a lot of it can be corroborated of these creatures, monster sightings. A lot of them linked to national parks. I started going through the records and it took forever, but I started to find them. What if in this monstrous time, time of discovery, the westward expansion, moving on from that in our history and becoming a contiguous United States, what if we decided we need to keep control of that which we don't understand because there is some stuff here. That is the concept behind today's episode, and I think it's going to be really interesting to get into. Absolutely. What about the expansion? Oh, boy, the expansion is going to be... Hold on to your butts. Pretty awesome. For those of you who don't know, we have a, a bonus episode dropping every time we drop a main episode. That's right, that's right. Called an expansion. Just yes. as fun and, and fact-filled. Yeah, so this expansion is going to be pretty exciting. Actually, it's going to dovetail nicely with what you're doing, Jer. Because it is going to be covering strange disappearances, but we're not going to go into the super sad, unfortunate examples of true crime disappearances. Those have their place for sure. But I wanted to focus on people who return and what strange things they experience. Are there patterns in these experiences? These strange examples of calling out to people and rescuers not hearing you or other oh, yeah. people in the forest acting strangely that you see and you go for aid. That's going to be in this episode, right? Yes, but in the expansion, we're going to do more of those stories. There's one in Hong Kong that's going to relate to one in the States. It's a global phenomenon for sure. And we're also going to look at another David Polite story. So we'll be doing some missing persons return, strange, bizarre. What it's like to go missing. What it's like to go missing. And what are the high strangeness phenomena that occur when you go missing and are fortunate enough to return to tell your tale. So that's going to be part of the expansion. And we might get to some National Park monster encounters as well. Oh, interesting. A couple for some spice. Some of the things that they're hiding, yeah. potentially. Awesome. But let's get into it, Jerry. Let's get into the containment theory. Okay, so let's do it. So... As I said, I think the key element here specifically with regards to Missing 411 are these clusters in these national parks, right? We know that that's the thing that David Politis has brought out. You can overlay a map of missing people in national parks and you actually have it, we'll have the notes here, and you can see how those line up. Why are these people going missing? You can say, well, it's they're hiking. You know, it's a big space. It's the woods. Right. But as we'll get into it, as Chris especially will get into the attributes of these strange disappearances, key aspects to the phenomena that are highly strange, Things like suddenly becoming confused for no reason. Yeah. Uh, weather phenomena appearing out of nowhere. Fog rolling in mm -hmm. right when you reach the summit of a mountain. Right. Or right when the rescuers are looking, it happens to occur. Dogs not being able to track the scent. All these kinds of things that we've touched on before that just make it odd. Yeah. And if you want more stories about specifically the patterns that point to these unexplained disappearances that all connect, check out our earlier Missing 411 episodes. We did a couple Strange Fairies Beyond Missing 411. Yeah. This one's going to be more about what people experience and get to come back and talk right. about, less about the clues of someone who's unfortunately been lost. Moving on from that, in these national parks, what ties this all together is the strange phenomena witnessed and reported. We talked about the native stories and creatures that tie into these areas specifically. We've heard stories of thunderbirds, dinosaurs, all kinds of monsters that are reported that seem to be linked, not just in national parks, but in these kind of wilderness regions. And then, of course, the fairy abduction idea. Yeah. And you, some of your stories that you'll talk about as far as being able to see people, but it doesn't seem like they see you, almost like a trans-dimensional... There's a veil. Block. There's a veil that you may slip through. And yeah. maybe 
when people experience that silence in the woods, that Oz effect, mm-hmm. everything goes quiet, which we'll experience in a story coming up from Teddy Roosevelt, actually. That's funny because I have a similar story with that same effect. That'll be in the expansion. Right. Really interesting example in a national park. But just another aspect of this phenomenon. So could these parks have been created to mitigate exposure to this kind of thing? John, didn't you used to hike in that up in Washington? Wasn't there a national park you used to go to? Yeah, Mount Rainier. Oh, that was Mount Rainier? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. I got a Mount Rainier story. Yeah, I mean, wild place. Yeah, what was your feeling when you were up in there? Did you just have like, weird vibes? Yeah, it's just, it's like otherworldly, beauty-wise and just... It's dense too, right? Yeah, it's, I feel like I'm in Jurassic Park or something. I mean, it's just so ancient feeling and just so like grand. Yeah. Definitely feels like <laughs> things could be there that you're not fully aware of. Yeah, and that's something people experience a lot, just that feeling of mm-hmm. being watched. I was going to say that's interesting because one of the stories I have in the expansion is a dinosaur tale, and it's in Mount Rainier National Park in a place called Mystic Lake Campground. I mean, it's very Nessie-esque, but yeah. Nessie-esque. Nessie-esque. I did find when I was searching through those newspaper archives trying to find late 1800 stories of creatures in national parks, I did find a sea monster it was described very similar to Nessie, which I thought was interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. That'll be a fun archive to get into. It just takes a lot of digging. Yeah, you did some great work on that. So let's get into it. So our key figure in this theory is Teddy Roosevelt. John, you're familiar, right? Yeah. So he was this great hunter, wildlife enthusiast. Right. Actually, here's a great picture of him. He's riding a moose. What? In a river. That looks terrifying. Is that real? I mean, I don't think they had Photoshop back then. No, it's a real photo, but I don't know if the moose is dead. He's definitely on the back of a (laughs) moose in the water. I mean, they're some of the most dangerous animals in the world. Yeah, I'm going to Google that. Could be a tamed one. In the wild. Well, someone will know this picture probably. Wasn't he a hunter? He was a hunter too, yeah. He probably killed it. Well, you know, it's an interesting story. This could have been a tame moose that they had trained because, you know, they were doing a lot of weird stuff back then with like grizzly bears dancing and stuff. But uh, someone out there is going to do the And someone's going to be yelling at their radio right now. But interestingly, <laughs> the Teddy of Teddy Bear, so he was in North Carolina. And in one of those scenarios, the people there that were showing around and probably in the Smoky Mountains somewhere where a lot of crazy stories happen, they had tied a black bear to a tree and Aww. said, here you go, shoot him. Wait, right? What? Yeah, shoot him. Like, we tied it up for you. You can shoot it now, Mr. President. And he's like, that's pretty unsportsmanlike. And yeah. he refused to shoot it. Well, yeah, I would think. And someone heard about that and wrote a story about it. And I don't know if it was that person or someone else who heard that story created a bear to sell. And it was called Teddy's Bear. And oh, so that's, that's how it started spreading. And then it oh. became a popular gift for kids. And then it became Teddy Bear. Now everybody has one. Yeah, pretty interesting. And that's the story. And that's the story. But then he created the National Parks Program to hide the devil from us. <laughs> so it's interesting you say that. I've got a pretty fascinating account from Devil's Den National Park. There, we talked about this before. There's a lot of devil connection mm-hmm. in the national parks. There's Devil's Gulch, Devil's Ravine, whatever. There always seems to be. And of course, because you could say it's a dangerous place, people fall, you know, the devil take them, mm-hmm. right? But it could also be because there is a freaky phenomenon there yeah. that maybe people have experienced a witness. And we have stories like that. David Polites did a, a lot of research on that actually for his latest book, Devil in the Details. And we'll be doing a couple stories from that in the expansion. Oh, cool. So, like I said, Teddy Roosevelt, he enacted the what's now referred to as the Organic Act. And this was in 1916. What this did is this created 150 national parks during his term. 230 million acres. That's 230 million oh, wow. acres of public land. <laughs> was created. Taken. What percentage of the country is that? You know? Actually, I have a, there's a great book by uh, Stockton. Oh, Steve Stockton. Steve Stockton. And he has some statistics like that that yeah. I'll be referencing later, specifically regards to the Smoky Mountains. We've got a couple of his stories. We'll get to him later. But this gigantic amount of land, and that's one of the points he makes too, is we have no idea 
what's out there in a lot of these areas where, especially wilderness areas where you are not allowed to drive a dirt bike, a car, operate a chainsaw, gigantic swaths of land where you can't even land a plane or a helicopter unless it's search and rescue. There's no way we know what's in there. Yeah. There are places, and Steve Stockton says in his book, that we'll link in the show notes, great book about the Smoky Mountains, specifically regards to the Smoky Mountains, there are places, as he says, I'm paraphrasing, that likely no humans have been, even indigenous people or even Bigfoot, if he exists, <laughs> would have stepped foot in some of these areas because it's just so, there's just so much so space. Fast. Yeah. But we'll get to the Smokies. So Teddy, when he signs into law, the Organic Act, creating this national park system and the National Park Service, that's when we first had this connective kind of control. Because before they were like state-based, private interests can be involved in parks and stuff, national parks. This was the first time that it was this kind of, let's control this. And then then you can get that kind of operation where you have a set order, a bureaucracy, a logistical map of what to do if something's encountered, that kind of Compartmentalization. Exactly. It almost reminds me of, I'm getting Antarctica vibes, but on a national oh, scale yeah. as opposed to global scale. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, what's that treaty in Antarctica? Uh, it's called the, we're not going to tell you treaty. We'll drop it in with a robot voice. The Antarctica Treaty. But what's interesting, so he created that act, right? So I'm thinking, okay, Teddy, he's the guy. He's the one that was like, let's start this program, the National Parks for whatever reason, conservation, yada, yada, maybe something more. But the interesting thing is before the National Park Service was created with the Organic Act in 1872, before he was president, there was the Yellowstone National Park Act. Yellowstone was the first national park before we had a national park system. Interesting. It was like, we have to preserve this special place, obviously with the volcano, the geysers, and this beautiful, beautiful land. But with these clusters of people going missing, specifically in Yellowstone, places like Lake Mead, Grand Canyon National Park, Yosemite, and Yellowstone, is it possible that the park was established, the very first one, because there was something there, because there was something they needed to control, bam, it's the first park to be locked down set aside as public land that is controlled by the United States government, no longer privately owned or operated. And even indigenous people, they were originally allowed to hunt their lands there. And then there was something called the Lacey Act that came in some years later that basically said no hunting at all. So even they weren't allowed to operate in there without... And this is Yellowstone specific? Specifically Yellowstone, which was set aside. There's even a quote in the Organic Act of 1916 when it initiates the national park system. In section three of that act, it specifically sets aside Yellowstone. Okay, here it is. That the Secretary of the Interior may, under such rules and regulations, and on such terms as he may prescribe, grant the privilege to graze livestock within any national park, monument, or reservation herein referred to, when in his judgment such use is not detrimental to the primary purpose for which such park, monument, or reservation was created, except that this provision shall not apply to the Yellowstone National Park. So it sounds like essentially that it's saying that as this act creates the national park system going forward and gives this secretary of the interior the ability to permit land use such as cattle in future parks, if I'm reading this right, it does that except specifically in Yellowstone, almost like, and it might be a reach, but could there be something in Yellowstone that they were concerned about? And they're saying, hey, just keep it out of Yellowstone. Weird. Yellowstone was special. So the Yellowstone National Park Act from 1872 established Yellowstone as the first true national park. It's funny, they used to refer to the national parks as uh, the country's playgrounds. Aw. Which is why, maybe, maybe. Do you know who guarded the national parks initially? Especially Yellowstone? Monsters? The military. That makes more sense. But maybe from 
Monsters. But the Guard of the Parks from who? Oh, you mean just as like the National Guard kind of thing? So according- before they had a park service, like a, before they exactly, had- Exactly, before National yeah. Park Service, because according to what I read, uh, in the early days of Yellowstone, poaching, setting the park on fire, because that's what you do for fun, and defacing hot springs were rampant. Uh-huh. So that's why they had these guys, this picture will be in the show notes, the Calvary were in to guard the parks. But could there be another reason? Could there mm-hmm. be more than just- you know, why bring in the military? Of course, graffiti, poaching, probably. Kind of reminds me of when you have these missing 401 cases and the Green Beret will appear. Oh, yeah. Or the FBI will appear, but they won't investigate. Or they're doing something on the side of the investigation right. that are, they're not cooperating. Just reminds me of that. Naturalist John Muir noted his appreciation for the military stewardship in his 1901 book, Our National Parks, quote, The national parks are efficiently managed and guarded by small troops of United States cavalry. The soldiers do their duty so quietly that the traveler is scarce aware of their presence. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for the purposes of that this either episode, way, yeah, you can definitely construe that as a, yeah, a little bit of... John Muir, Sierra Club. I mean, there are conspiracies behind him as well. Yeah, I remember hearing his name. Uh, but his woods are beautiful. Definitely. So I'm not sure where to land on all this, but I think it's a fascinating idea. And there's so much more to get into that, John, will dive us into a direction that I think you'd be interested in maybe for another episode. Because I just had a feeling when I was looking at this stuff with the national parks and kind of the land grabby stuff going on. Mm-hmm. I just had this gut inclination to search Rockefeller and I didn't. I searched history behind national parks origin or whatever. Third result was Rockefeller's land grab behind the national park and how he worked with, I think it was a Senator. I forget his name to get the land around the grand Teton national park, bought all this land. It's, it's kind of a whole story, but I just get that conspiracy tingle. Yeah, because it's around the same time of like setting up the Federal Reserve and right. all the stuff right, right behind and all the institutions. So there's a whole a way we could meddling. go with this. That's really interesting. A lot of meddling. But let's continue on here, move away from Yellowstone and that for now. The last act I wanted to touch on, and this is one that's fascinating to me, is the Wilderness Act. And as I said, all these acts alone, I'm not saying are bad. Conservation is great. The only problem I have with it is when it's, I think it should be, as we all agree, I think, man working with nature, humans mm-hmm. and nature together. When it's nature over man, like you're pushing people out instead of working with the people that already live there. Right. Actually, if you go to Smoky Mountains National Park or anywhere national parks, you'll find old settlements, old homes. A lot of these places were either bought for cheap or people were forced out like the indigenous peoples in different situations. So mm-hmm. that's kind of when conservationism is a bummer. Yeah, it seems more like this is our property. Yeah, when you're the one who's dictating in control of who can be here. Right. Specifically, where it gets interesting is wilderness areas. So the final act I'm going to mention here is the Wilderness Act of 1964. This act originally set aside 9.1 million acres of federal land as protected wilderness areas. Now, the earlier act ate up a lot more, but that's because the Wilderness Act is so much more severe, so much more restrictive. Oh, okay. The Wilderness Act creating these wilderness areas, set aside land that cannot contain permanent or temporary roads, no commercial activity, no motorized equipment, like I said, not even a chainsaw to cut aside a tree for a trail or whatever, no mechanical transport, no ATVs, no cars, no helicopters. If you want to get in there, you can't be in there for long because you got to get out because there's no about rescue. I mean, they got allowed for That's the only time. Okay. And then there's occasional like water reservoir activity to build a structure to, you know. So you would be positing the possible theory that it might not be just because let's keep this as pristinely wilderness as possible, but maybe there's something in these specific wilderness areas that are like, okay, we cannot have people able to move around at quick speeds because there could be something here that you're going to find a lot easier. You're going to come across easier 
if you're constantly traveling well, through Imagine it. building like an apartment complex and then underneath is like a Hellgate. And right. what a problem or that Or a dragon's be. nest. Or a dragon's nest. It's a big problem. Yeah, or an ogre's cave. Like there's all kinds of realistic problems that you could run into. So how much land is that? In 2015, the federal government managed around 109.1 million acres of wilderness. That's approximately 17% of all land owned by the federal government and 5% of all land in the United States. 5% of all land in the United States, we practically know nothing about. Interesting. Because they're wilderness areas that are so extremely conserved and protected that you just can't spend much time in them. And if you do, it has to be really restricted. Again, 109.1 million acres of wilderness area that you cannot drive a car on a park road. You can't fly a helicopter into without being a rescue. You can't build a permanent structure, even a temporary road. You can't even ride a bicycle. Makes you wonder also about like secret bases. Oh, absolutely. Or about like private retreats for the elite. Just tucked away. Doomsday elite bases, that kind of stuff. And dragon's nests. And then you tie that into the cave situation, right? Like, again, I said this graph will be in the show notes, this picture, but it's an overlay of missing persons clusters and cave systems. Yeah. Inextricably tied. I always wondered, is it possible that they're all connected underneath? Because we know across the United States, there's so many extremely long cave systems. Yeah. And so many of them have, that have, haven't been explored mm -hmm. to their full potential. Like what if there is some sort of underlying structure that connects all these places. Yeah. Little snatcheries, I call them, where they snatch snatcheries. people. It's freaky. Yeah, Mammoth Cave, I don't know the data on that, but I know that that's massive. I don't think it's been fully explored. I want to say 200 miles, I don't know if that's right. But there is a lot of cavernous ground that have not been charted underneath yeah. us, and they could lead to the inner earth, where a lot of these creatures could come from. That's my personal opinion. What's fascinating, Jer? Okay, this is really interesting about the Wilderness Parks, last thing. I can't wait. Notwithstanding any other provisions of this act, the Secretary of Agriculture may complete his review and delete such areas as may be necessary. Bold letters. But not to exceed 7,000 acres from the southern tip of Gore Range Eagle's Nest, primitive area, Colorado. Oh, weird. Is there something there? <laughs> That's weird. Why mm. in, in this act? There's one specific spot that no matter what, you cannot Yeah, like you touch. have complete control. Secretary of Agriculture may delete areas that we are requesting. But don't do this part, though. What's there? That's, I just thought found that curious. Dragon's Nest. The Dragon's Nest. Hmm. Chris will contend. So I think that's fascinating, guys. I yeah, think very interesting. We're setting up kind of an interesting theory here. I hope that people do their own research. We'll continue to dig into this more through this episode, but we're going to take a short break. Yes. So don't get lost. We also got a stinger coming up today, which is really fun. Absolutely. For Logan. That's right. Oh, that's a great one. All right, guys. We'll see you in a sec. Now, this week's expansion preview. Access granted. So he's investigating a bunch of mysteries that occur in this area, disappearances, strange deaths, all happening in this Seikung Country Park and what they call enchantment of Seikung. Um, and this area is sort of another, again, another triangle situation for the hikers of the region. Hong Kong is now one of the most congested and densely populated regions on the planet, with almost 7.5 million people crammed into an area of barely 426 square miles. It's only natural that, when circumstances allow, residents would want to get away from it all and perhaps go for a hike in the countryside. However, if you do this, in an area called Sekung, you'd better keep your wits about you. Known for its picturesque fishing villages, beautiful scenery, wildlife, beaches, and hiking trails, the Seikung District is often dubbed the Back Garden of Hong Kong. Providing a welcome contrast to the hustle and bustle of urban life, it attracts Hong Kongers keen to unwind and get back to nature. A common phrase one hears is Seikung enchantment, which is normally used to describe people who visit the place and fall under its spell. 
But as with most things in Chinese culture, there is a deeper, more sinister meaning. Over the years, there have been multiple reports of weird occurrences in Seikung. People disappear, usually while out hiking, and are never seen again. Others are found dead in mysterious circumstances, often after displaying bizarre or erratic behavior. There have also been survivors who emerge from the wilderness, wide-eyed and full of incredible stories. And this is what leads us to Zhang's Champagne story. If you enjoyed that clip, head over to bleafhole.com and hit the expansion button to get access to all of our extra episodes. We're back. Hi. Welcome back. I found an answer to the moose question. Oh, did you? By the way, as I'm sure audience was very curious well, about. Well, on the break we were talking about it and John's like, that moose is alive. His head is out of the water. Yes, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. He is alive, but it is not real. Why would you spoil it? Well, I want to. I guess it's better than someone else writing it. It's an interesting story, though. Um, This comes from Meat Eater. Great podcast, by the way. So the claim was that he obviously wrote a boost, right? But apparently, there's a photo that appeared in the New York Tribune on a page dedicated to the 1912 presidential race. In a series of three (laughs) pictures, each candidate is shown riding the animal that represents their political party. Oh, that's right. Republican William Taft on an elephant, (laughs) progressive Teddy Roosevelt on a moose, and Democrat Woodrow Wilson on a donkey. The photo was also printed. And anyway, so it goes on. But I guess according to Heather Cole, curator of Harvard's Theodore Roosevelt collection, the graphic is an early example of photoshopping. Really? It was the work of photography firm Underwood and Underwood, who painstakingly cut out an image of TR. Oh, if you look closely, you can kind of see that. Riding a horse. A horse. Yeah, because he has hands out for the reins. And, and pasted no reins. it on an image of a... It's like what I do for the episode images. That's pretty impressive. Photos of Taft and Wilson are also manipulated. Early 1900s Photoshop. That's really impressive. That's kind of interesting. A little less magical, but... Anyways, let's get back into the magic and the theory of containment. So back to Teddy. We're circling back to Ted. Did he have an understanding for something potentially superhuman, non-human, dangerous, living... In the wilderness. Right, that's a good question. Something that maybe he would, maybe if asked, well, hey, we, we control this area up in Yellowstone. There might be a reason we want to do this more. And giving him some examples, he might be like, I know someone who saw this. I have a story. Yeah, and our listeners might be familiar. We touched on this exact account on a few occasions, but we've never done a deep dive on it. So I'm excited we're going to tell this story for the first time. Oh, yes. This is referred to as Bauman's story, if I'm pronouncing that right. So this story would suggest that he not only was aware of something anomalous, something dangerous in the wilderness, but that he believed it. Something unexplained. Yes, and this specifically leans in the Bigfoot, wild man, some say a a werewolf, Bigfoot, dogman, bear situation. It's a freaky animal. So essentially what we have here is a story told to Teddy Roosevelt by a frontiersman or a wilderness fella named Bauman that he had met haphazardly out in the wilderness on the frontier. A story of what sounds like something very freaky and dangerous in the woods. A forest monster. Forest monster, simply put. So there are three attributes about the story that I think are interesting. This was pointed out by Bob Gimlin on his YouTube channel, great YouTube channel. Those three points that adds credibility to this are, one, Roosevelt spoke directly with Bauman. This isn't secondhand, thirdhand. This is uh, secondhand in the sense that we're hearing it from Teddy who heard it from Bauman, but it happened to Bauman. Two, Roosevelt is a credible character. Well, obviously, he's a president. Take whatever credibility Back you want out of that. they had a little more credibility. Yeah, he obviously was a frontiersman. He knew what he was doing in the wild. He was not a man to be trifled with. He had Teddy and the Rough Riders, I think, was his crew. 
that uh, were in the war. He became a famous war hero that made him a serious contender, a man of, I guess you could say, some kind of character. Sort of a folk hero. Folk hero, yeah. Roosevelt did not think Bauman was lying. He wrote, quote, He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly suppress a shudder when he was telling him the story. Ooh. So without further ado, John, I'd like you to harness your withered frontiersman voice. Yes. I don't know what Teddy Roosevelt sounded like, actually. But I imagine we'll just give him a rough voice because he was a rough writer. So John- You probably talk like this. <laughs> oh. just- <laughs> uh, I'm traveling. In the woods. <laughs> Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> so where do I start? Frontiersman? Yeah. And what voice do you want? Well, you're a rough writer. You know, you've, seen, you've been living in the wilderness. Frontiersman or not yeah. is a rule. Here you go. Like that guy? Yeah, I think that'll work. Not but- super as gruff because he is the president. But he's got some... Since the time in the city, too, but he's got, you know, a little old school. Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. Hand <laughs> my rifle while I smite that bear. Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical, and have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and those who were of a perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. I was told by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, who was born and had passed all of his life on the frontier. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghosts and goblin lore so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by Indian medicine men in their winter camps of the snow walkers and the specters and the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths and dog and waylay the lonely wanderer who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. And it may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute, both at the time and still more in remembrance, weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. But whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains, dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which he ran a small stream said to contain many beavers. (laughs) Thank you, George Bush. (laughs) (laughs) The pass had an evil reputation because the year before a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was slain there, seemingly by a wild beast. The half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighted very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They struck out on foot, with an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. So at this point, they travel through this hard country, a lot of down timber and the like, for trapping, before they reach their camp again at dusk. The glade in which the camp was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising round it like a wall with a little stream on one side. 
They were surprised to find that during their absence something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores and lighting the fire. While Bauman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely. After a few minutes, he came back to the fire. He stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon again examining the tracks with a torch, They certainly did seem to be made by but two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest in the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. So, when morning comes, they leave to check their traps, lay a few more. They stay together all day while trapping for obvious reasons. But near the end of the day, they come across more bipedal tracks. This makes them uneasy. They gather a great heap of dead logs, kept roar- and kept a roaring fire throughout the night, each of them standing guard at different times. About midnight, the thing came down through the forest opposite, across the brook, and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiarly sinister sound, yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed and slight rustling noises among the small pines alongside them. So as the day goes on, the sun comes out, these guys are used to being out in the wilderness. They start to think, well, what were we worried about? You know, when the sun comes out and you're not as concerned anymore because in the light of day, things seem fine. So they start to lose that fear a little bit, but they still have some beaver traps to collect. So Bauman volunteers to get the rest of the beaver traps and sends his friend, his companion, ahead up to the camp to get their packs ready to leave that day. On reaching the pond, Bauman took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver. And when he started homewards, he marked, with some uneasiness, how low the sun was getting as he hurried toward camp under the tall trees. The silence and desolation of the forest waited on him. There was nothing to break the gloomy stillness which, 
when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber, primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs wrapped and arranged. At first Bauman could see nobody. Stepping forward, he again shouted. And as he did so, his eyes fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature printed deep in the soft soil told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled around it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it. Weird. Yeah, that creepy. Ew. He rolled over the body? Like it was like his, like animals do, like when they rub themselves on something dead or it's creepy detail. And it then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half human or half devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where their ponies were waiting. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until beyond reach of pursuit. The end. Jeez. Isn't that terrifying? Pretty intense. So that came from, was that Teddy Roosevelt's autobiography or something that he It was wrote? his book. It was called, oh, I think it's called Wilderness Hunter or The Wilderness Hunter by Theodore Roosevelt, 1892. It's from that book. Yeah. I mean, can you just imagine being in those situations? And back then they knew that stuff like that was not only a possibility, but. Yeah. Well, depending on your superstitions. Well, just the chances of dying out there. Oh, right. There's so many things that can kill you out there. Yeah, Absolutely. So many things that can go wrong. Right. Yeah, pretty uh, incredible people. Yeah. The grit that people had. Yeah. You know? I mean, we all have that grit now. Yeah. People at the grocery store. Right. I don't know what I would do against a goblin beast, as he puts you it. You could take a picture with your iPhone. <laughs> right before he eats me. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> your last living like trying gesture. to upload it. <laughs> Did I get a like? <laughs> Did I get a like? Well, go on, like. Worth it. Yeah. My father died when he had two followers from his final post. <laughs> his mouth is like open in horror, but he's like doing a selfie. selfie? <laughs> <laughs> had to be done. Oh, He'd be a hero today. Yeah, there are people that have, have had accidents like that. I mean, why do I feel like that has happened probably to people? Well, there are sad stories, obviously, where people are like staying too close risks. to a cliff because yeah. they want that picture. Oh, that. Yeah. Speeding trains. And someone that's like... Like a beast like is coming? selfieing. A dog man? A like, tiger? I think it's even happened at zoos. Yeah. Unless I'm making that up my mind. I feel like I saw something. Terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Gives me that feeling in my stomach. I'm going to stay like... right here at my desk. I'm never leaving. <laughs> I'm going to go in the woods. But I've got a window. 
you know, if you would operate as these guys did, if you were, even if you were just like, I'm sure we have some listeners that are not cowards, computer people that have you go hunting, for instance, and you're out in the woods in areas where there are wild animals that could kill you, like say grizzlies or right. cougars. It sounds like they did what you would do. You'd shoot at it. It goes away. You assume, okay, it's a bear. It now it knows we're dangerous. We're fine. We sleep right. through the night we're next threat. day. But then next day you see the, the prince again and they're bipedal. That freaks you out a little bit. Another question here is the wild men possibility. <laughs> Yeah. And I know, I know, as you said yesterday, Chris, we, we were talking about this idea of some of this phenomena where the wild men, at least in some instances, are not these Bigfoot type creatures, but potentially are literally wild men, feral people, feral people. Yeah, this is a theory about a lot of the national park strange experiences where people experience these things that might actually be feral humans who at some point, maybe when the national parks were taken over, people that lived there didn't want to leave the land and then just grow away from society and become these reclusive, potentially dangerous, potentially people. cannibalistic, potentially cannibal. That's this, a lot of the folk stories you get mm-hmm. about this stuff. Uh, to me, it's, it's possible. I never really gave it much thought because it's not as colorful to me as, you know, monsters. I want the monsters to be monsters. You know, it's like the same thing. If there's an apocalypse, I don't want it to be zombies. That to me, that's a snore fest. Because they're people, they're basically people. Yeah. Right. So you want wild men? I to want be an blue. alien apocalypse. Transformed though into something else. As long as it's not a zombie. But a zombie is no longer a person. I know, but to me, for some, there's something about it to me that's just <laughs> it's too close dumb, to human. Zombies are dumb. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. I don't understand. No, that. no offense, because a lot of people well, they're incredibly popular. I just don't understand the fetish with them. Yeah, I think you know. We just well, lost. 15 lists. Yeah. <laughs> I get it like I get it intellectually and I get it like in a story aspect way. I get it in the themes around it are interesting, right? No, like, I don't think they're interesting. Like, oh, this is when man goes rogue and the, the, it's a reflection of like man's inhumanity to other men. Well, it's also like a, the original one was, you know, Dawn of the Dead. It's a reflection of like right. consumerism. It's, a, it's satire in a sense. But like the second one took place in a mall. And I think the reason for that was that Romero was to show like mm-hmm. consumerism, which I, I totally get. It's just so played out now. And yeah, that's I yeah. think the reason. If it was one zombie movie, I'd probably love it. But it's, you know, it's such a thing it's now. It's an endless trope at this point. When I was in film school in San Francisco, we did a uh, zombie thing for our sound class. Like we did the Foley and all that stuff. And uh, that was like, that was like 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the peak of the zombie stuff, yeah. but it's still going on. Anyway, I don't want to digress too much. Some people love zombie stuff. No offense. Cause yeah, you know, a lot of we people still pro- like you. A lot of people probably don't like a lot of the stuff I'm into. We still like you. Don't not like us. Cause we don't like zombies. That's I not mean, fair. I don't if, respect you as much. You no, know, people are like zombies are bust. I'm not gonna listen to you guys. And you know what? Good riddance. Okay. Get out of here, zombies. Don't go. Get out of here, you zombie lovers. As long as zombie lovers like us too, then that's fine with it. Yeah, we can be friends. Just kidding. We can be friends. It's a preference. We can be friends. Anyways, I wanted to mention specifically on that point of the wild men because I do think it is interesting. There was an episode actually, if you guys will remember from the X Files about the uh, the Pine Barrens and the Jersey Devil. I think it was, mm-hmm. and it turned out. Spoiler alert. Tune out now if you don't want to know. They were feral people. Was that that episode? Yeah, and and their descriptions do match as far as like them being inhumanly fast, hairy, they stink. They have a lot of the similar attributes of a Sasquatch type creature. But why would they be inhumanly fast if they're just humans? Because they've just lived out in the the wilderness. There was actually a case of a boy named oh, I forget what Tim boy named Goo. I forget yeah, boy named Goo. I forget what they they called him. But King George was traveling in Germany. I'm probably botching this story. I think I read it in Steve Stockton's book, maybe, maybe somewhere else. But essentially they found this like wild boy and he was extremely fast. They like, couldn't catch him. Finally, they were able to trap him, but he hated cooked food. He hated, he wouldn't bathe. Obviously he didn't speak any language, but he would, uh, he could climb trees. 
incredibly fast and would spend his time on all fours and growling like a wolf. Yeah. But things that like humans, you'd have to be trained or spend your life doing that. I'm sure there are attributes that you can adopt that do seem inhuman at certain times because you've lived your life with the animals. Well, yeah, I think in a case like that where, where a child is abandoned or something in the forest, yeah. you have these stories of feral children that are raised by wolves or, or somehow survive. But Steve Stockton in his book, National Park Mysteries and Disappearances, he points out- Great book, by the way. Great book. We'll have that in the show notes. Volume one is specifically on the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. He points out specifically about the concept of people that were left behind or that just perhaps after the parks became national parks and you had these older settlements going back to the 1500s in some cases, 1600s. Early settlers. That people just didn't want to leave or they just, they didn't want to change their ways. And so they- stayed in the park. Could you get a congregation, a group of these eventually very wild, very dangerous people, maybe that do lean to cannibalism or maybe are more tame and civilized in their own old school way, but they have skills, they have reclusive habits and abilities that you'd only see them occasionally. And maybe they are responsible for abducting certain people. If you have a cannibalistic clan, that's the perfect kind of prey. Yeah. And it sounds, you know, so some people might sounds like horror science fiction kind of thing. Yeah. Even right now there are still tribal people in our world who've been left alone and who still practice cannibalism. It's not completely out of their own possibility that if you had a group of people that went back to the land and lived away from society for long enough that they wouldn't necessarily diverge back to that sort of appetite. But I like, I like the monster idea. So beyond the creatures, there's one specific kind of phenomena that's really fascinating. This ties into some of the stuff we've talked about before. We have a little anecdote, a story here from Yellowstone National Park. And this type of phenomena we're talking about here is unexplained music in the national park. Mm. Sound, natural maybe, sound or music that has this kind of weird effect to it. And it's very reminiscent of fairy music, fairy lore. When people get abducted by fairies or they happen to pass into a fairy circle or a fairy party, I forget what you call those when they're fairies doing, you know, they're good time. singing and hanging out. It's a weirdly common theme. Fairy circle. Well, fairy circle is what you see in the ground, but these kind of celebrations that seem to be transdimensional. I don't know if we've talked about this before on the show. Yeah, where you get taken in and then it's basically the risk is that you never come back or when you do, you've right. lost a long period of time. Missing time phenomena. If you guys are interested in. in that, check out our episode, Dark Fairies. Missing 4 and one Dark Fairies, I think Beyond Missing 4 and one yeah. I'll link in the show notes. But this kind of ties into that because of the music. Like that's one of the first things heard. And then this stuff starts happening. People go missing. It seems like they slip through the veil. They can see other people that can't see them coming up yeah. in the story. This little attribute here, Chris, do you want to read this? This is about that sure. type of phenomena. This one's interesting too, because this points to a possible origin to the beginning of the national parks or an example of one. Here's an example of, of a strange phenomena that might have brought about the quote need or want to create the national park system as a containment. Yeah. Here's a phenomenon that occurred before the development of national parks in a national park zone. And it occurred in what would become the first national park. Exactly. Yellowstone. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting find here. Okay. So this is interesting. This comes from someone who worked the national park service in the eighties. Someone found these old letters when people would write in and ask questions. And this person is writing about the discovery of these letters from the 1980s. Finding these few correspondences in a sea of letters about plants and recreational activities sparked some curiosity. These are letters about asking about Bigfoot specifically. Yeah, strange phenomena. Not only about Bigfoot's reported presence here, but also about other phenomena that may have been reported. It was found that Yellowstone actually has a long history of strange occurrences, including reports of what has been dubbed, quote, lake music as early as the 1880s. This is a hundred years before these letters were written. Fairies. Lake music has been described as a buzzing sound that moves across Lake Yellowstone. Hiram Chittenden, an early engineer in the park, refers to an, quote, 
overhead sound. In his 1895 book, Yellowstone National Park, Chittenden writes, quote, a most singular and interesting acoustic phenomenon of this region, although rarely noticed by tourists, it is the occurrence of strange and indefinable overhead sounds. They have long been noted by explorers, but only in the vicinity of Shoshone and Yellowstone lakes. Lake music continues to be heard by those who visit the park and camp in the lake area. The number of reports has led to scientific studies, yet no one has been able to conclude what causes the buzzing noise. And that's from the National Park Service. That's from the a government website, yeah. by the way, which is interesting. It just takes me back to all the sounds of, uh, all the ideas of alien abduction, the buzzing sounds, fae folk, stories with fairy abductions. Yeah, what was that other clip? You, you had a, a quote here from a book by Carpenter? Yeah, this is from an article, Shamanism and Alien Abduction, a Comparative Study. We'll link, this is a short little bit in this really fascinating document. Carpenter, 1994, is another American abduction researcher who has published a list of symptoms that he believes are associated with close encounters and which are also present in shamanism. These include vivid, unusual dreams, scream memories of unusual animals in unlikely places. Reminds me of our Muppet episode. Yeah. Apparent psychic abilities, strange buzzing or mechanical sounds in one's head prior to an abduction, and finding oneself surrounded by poltergeist or electromagnetic effects. Yeah, that's interesting because that ties into a lot of the missing people experiences right. with the buzzing sound specifically and just acoustics in general, the Oz effect, which was in that Teddy Roosevelt story. Yeah, we'll have a great comparative account in the expansion related to that. So interesting. It always relates to the alien abduction connection to fairy stories and that that sound, that the buzzing sound. Reminds me of the awesome and very generous Reiki healing that John and I had recently from Megan, which was awesome. But that buzzing feeling, that buzzing sound, obviously a less negative, but it, it reminds me of that, that sort of sensation, less audible, more physical, but yeah. Yeah. We'll have to talk a little bit more about that at some point. Yeah. It's real. Pretty incredible experience. And you guys seem to have, I know you, Chris, specifically beforehand, you were a little, not skeptical of her, but you just never, never done anything like that before. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know what to expect. I just, it was less of me thinking that nothing was going to happen because she didn't have any ability. It was more of, I didn't know if I would be receptive to this kind of thing. You're like a dead battery. Exactly. <laughs> a little drained out. All these energy drinks just zapped me. When you came out of the room, because you, you'd done it remotely, but you came out of the room, I didn't want to obviously interfere. And you just seemed like something happened to you. It was amazing. Honestly, it was. It was, I won't go into all of it right now, but to me, one of the biggest takeaways, besides like the vision stuff and how connected we were during this remote, it was remote. She was in California. But the vibration for me personally, it was the vibration that, that began in the beginning of the session that went through my body. This warm, heavy vibration charge was so similar to my out-of-body experience. It was like something clicked mentally for me. Like this is, this is real. I've experienced this before. It's obviously connected to this. And then the rest of the session was just like simpatico, weird synchronicity vision stuff within the session. And it's weird because not to spoil anything that you experienced, John, but the one thing you mentioned, remember the the flutter, the flutter of the mm -hmm. eyes last night at bath time. I tried, <laughs> the, I tried time. the meditation on my own mm -hmm. just, just briefly. And immediately my eyes just started. It was very bizarre. What meditation? I just kind of recreated in my mind oh, what she had me walk through right. with the roots down from the feet. And I was like, why are my eyes? And it was just in the first like, like two I've minutes. I've never in my entire life had that experience. It was like uncontrollable. Just uncontrollable eye fluttering. fluttering. And, and not uncomfortable. It kind of feels good. It's not. Yeah. It's just a feeling that I, I couldn't do it if I wanted to yeah. right now. It I don't even know how to do it. It's like a muscle spasm Weird. in your eyes. There's a feeling of letting go and it just goes. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like, so bizarre. It's just, when mine first started, she, I think she had mentioned to me that that might happen. Mm -hmm. And then it just started happening very intensely mm -hmm. 
And then she said she, it was happening to her too. The weird thing was mine really? were, maybe yours were two. I would imagine they would go independently of each other too. It wasn't just like blinking. It was like, yeah. it was kind of all over the place. Yeah, it wasn't blinking. It was, yeah, it was just uncontrollable spasming of the eyelids. I'd never experienced that before, but what's so weird to me and interesting is that that feeling, that sensation of like when they start going, the letting go is exactly the same sensation that was tied to, for me, the the vibration when I left my body, that mm -hmm. feeling of like completely that, letting yeah. go. And when my eyelids started to go like that, I was like, oh, am I about to leave? That's yeah, a yeah. And then I was like, Chris, get out of the bathroom. <laughs> I had a lucid dream last night. It felt like almost like an out-of-body experience. Like I was, I was dreaming and I knew I was dreaming and I was like, in the dream, I was thinking that it could be an out-of-body experience. I wasn't thinking it was a dream. And I remember going up to Jake. I remember just getting this feeling of intention of drawing myself something, but it was hard. It wasn't like an easy floating. It was like, go over there. It's uh, <laughs> always the way. And uh, like... Yeah, but it was very intense. It was a lucid dream? Like you were aware you were dreaming? I thought, thought it was, was an out-of-body out experience, oh, okay. but I knew it wasn't real life. You knew that you were un kind of unconscious, right? Yeah. How do you know it wasn't an out-of-body experience? I don't know, where, for where sure. You, did you leave from your bed? Yes. Okay. I'm wondering if it was maybe, oh, you woke up into an out-of-body I mean, experience. The only thing that makes me think it wasn't is because I was interacting with Jake. Was he talking to you? No. We're supposed to go for that walk. Five walks a day isn't enough. <laughs> Jake starts gnawing on your silver cord. He's <laughs> <laughs> just like, I never like you. <laughs> <laughs> it like severs you from your body. <laughs> Jake, no. Oh, anyway, that was a good tangent. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll do an episode on Reiki and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, we'll have to. I mean, that was... Totally changed my interest in that topic. I think I'll probably do one again. Yeah. Just because I feel like that kind of started the process. It's yeah. just interesting that it can be done from a distance mm -hmm. like that too. I always saw that because I've done websites for people that are kind of in that field and our friend Nicole is kind of in that vein of, of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was always just kind of like, I don't know, because you see stuff online and sometimes it's tied to some sales just pitch or something. It sounds kind of yeah, like... Yeah, it sounds like something too that could be very intention-based, sort of self-fulfilling, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying, like psychosomatic almost, like... Yeah, like placebo sort right, of thing. Right, right. Like there could be something to it, but you know, it's like right. how real is it? There is an element to it for me personally, that style that has this kind of like new agey feel. Right, the way, oh, it's, the totally. way it's presented. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there isn't reality to it and that people like Megan seems very skilled. Oh yeah, she wasn't doing, like that at all. It was very... Uh, that's sort of the glitzy thing on top of it that isn't what it actually veneer. is. Just like paranormal podcasters, like in their limos and stuff, opposite of our authentic selves yes, with we're, what we're doing. <laughs> what paranormal podcasters are in limos. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sellouts. No, no, Stay poor. <laughs> Stay poor. So much cooler to Keep be. Keep the poor. fingers bloody. <laughs> Typing up. The I'll research. take a limo. Well, let's wrap this episode up. Yeah. But you had a story, Chris, right? Yeah, we can just do one. This will be a little taste for the expansion. We'll save more for the expansion because obviously this concept can go all kinds of ways. Just the phenomenon in general when it comes to national parks, missing people. Actually, there's a great channel I'm going to recommend. We'll put in the show notes called Missing Persons Mysteries. It's awesome. And they focus a lot on that. Bill Bill Melder has the channel, and I think a lot of it's Steve Stockton's work and Steve Stockton narrates, I believe. Yeah. But it's a fantastic channel. We'll link it in the show notes. Just you know, put on when you're working, doing whatever. I, we have it on a lot just because it's fascinating. It really draws you in. But if you want more stories like that, they are out there. That's a great place to go for them. And actually the creator of the channel, Bill, I believe, has had an experience with specifically with translucent entities. Invisible entities, yeah. When we talked about the Glimmer Man, we had the episode on Glimmer Man. He had one he commented about in uh, Joshua Tree. Yeah, I'm, I hope we can get that from him. I'm excited to hear I that. I would love to touch back on the Glimmer Man. I think uh, it kind of began his direction into this. Yeah, Steve's had some experiences too. I, I won't have time to play it today, but if you're an expansion member, you've probably heard it. We did a story about, it called The Disintegrating People, where the clothes were found. We can drop it in after the That's fact. That's true, maybe. we can drop it in. You guys can enjoy it if you haven't heard it yet. Excellent account, but that's from his book, Strange Things in the Woods by Steve Stockton.
This is the story of the weirdest thing I've ever encountered in the woods. It was the summer after my freshman year of high school, and my friends and I often went to the local park when the weather was nice. It had become kind of cloudy on this particular day, so my friend Jenny and I thought we might explore in the woods and maybe try some of the hiking trails. As we ventured into the woods, we veered off the trail and came across what I can only describe as a primitive campsite. There was a lean-to made from pine boughs, a stone fire pit, and evidence that someone had been there recently, namely empty Coke cans and snack food wrappers. Jenny and I poked around the campsite for a bit and, growing bored, decided to venture farther toward the lake. About a hundred yards from the campsite, we happened upon one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. There on the ground in the woods were two complete sets of human clothing, one male and one female, laid out as if the people were still in them. The man's outfit consisted of a lightweight tan windbreaker, a button-up shirt with a yellow check pattern, a white t-shirt, khaki pants, socks, and brown leather shoes. The t-shirt was inside the checkered shirt, which was tucked into the pants. There was even a belt in the pants. The socks were still in the bottom of the pant legs and went down into the shoes. The woman's ensemble was just as creepy. A pale blue windbreaker over a printed dress with tan-colored hose ending inside a pair of penny loafers. Furthermore, the right arm of the man's clothing overlapped the left arm of the woman's clothing, giving the appearance that the couple had lain down on the forest floor and had been holding hands. Now, there were no bones or anything like that, and the clothing still appeared to be in a fairly new state. It hadn't been in the woods very long. We prodded the clothes with a stick and heard what sounded like loose change or maybe keys jingle in the pocket of the man's khakis. Suddenly, overcome by fear, Jenny began crying and said we needed to leave right now. I agreed. I was feeling totally scared and freaked out. It looked as if the couple had lain down and simply disappeared, leaving their clothing behind. By now, both of us were in tears, and we ran the rest of the way out of the woods. We debated over several days as to what we should do. Maybe call the cops? Or take some other friends back and show them what we had found? We scoured the local papers for weeks, but never turned up any information about a missing couple. In the end, we decided the best thing to do was to keep it to ourselves and never go back into the woods. And we never have and probably never will, although it has now been close to 15 years since the incident occurred. But yeah, great channel. And we'll, we'll be mentioning them in the expansion too because there's some excellent... Actually, what spurred this expansion idea was I had synchronistically been reading a Fordian Times article, an old, old one right. that I had in uh, the bathroom. And uh, as I was reading this article, <laughs> the bathroom. it was about this case in Hong Kong, Zhang Shipang's story. Zhang Shipang. It's a, it's, a, it's a guy who went missing for five days. Uh, I think it was five days. We'll be doing this in the expansion. But he had this experience within his account where he saw people and he called to them and he said it was as if they couldn't see him or hear him, but he could see and hear them. The same sort of thing with the missing 411 stuff where the fog rolled in suddenly, unexpectedly gone, finally finds his way out of the situation. But the same day, I had just started recently putting on Missing Person Mysteries, Bill and Steve's channel, and just happened to play was a video on 
strange disappearances, like 13 accounts of weird things people experienced when they went missing and it had returned. So what it was like when they were gone. Right. And the corroboration between these two worlds apart experiences. That you found independently. Found independently, two different sources, but within an hour period. I was like, okay, this is a sign. We should do this on the next. And mm-hmm. you happen to be talking about doing containment theory. I was like, this will be a perfect expansion. But yeah, let's do one, one account. Can I request one? Sure. Can you do the one with the uh, brother and sister? Yeah, sure. Because I think that was fascinating. That's a great one. That's a missing 401 case, isn't and it? And this will tie one in. Yeah, this is a missing 401 case. If you enjoy this story, definitely check out the expansion. We'll have a link in the show notes, guys, if, if you're not a member yet. All right, this is the final one. We each have a part to play, so that's good. Okay, I call this The Others. This comes from David Plytus's book, Missing 401, Devils in the Details, uh, that we referenced earlier. This is an account that happened to Linda and Joe Ortega. On September 22nd, 2012, west of St. Joe, Arkansas, she was 53 years old when she disappeared. St. Joe is located in north central Arkansas. It is a very rural area with thick woods. The small city is just over a mile from Buffalo River National Park and five miles northeast of the Ozark National Forest. The area has hundreds of small bodies of water strewn throughout the landscape. This incident will be added to the Arkansas-Oklahoma cluster. On September 22, 2012, Linda Ortega from Blackwell, Oklahoma, had made the trip to St. Joe to visit with her brother, Eddie Huff. On this date, Linda and Eddie walked into the local woods. A September 28th article in the KY3 Reporter stated the following about what she was doing in the woods. Quote, Linda Ortega says she and her brother Eddie went for a walk Saturday looking for a fishing hole he'd heard about. But before long, they were lost and a peaceful walk turned into five terrifying days. During the search for the fishing hole, the two siblings got lost and then stayed together for three days and then somehow became separated. Linda's brother made it out of the woods and then reported her missing. Five days after Linda vanished, a searcher on an ATV found her two miles from the point she was last seen. The searcher took Linda to the search headquarters where the Searcy County Sheriff had an ambulance take her to the hospital. The reason this story is in this book is that Linda reported very unusual things happening to her while she was lost. In the same KY3 Reporter article was the following, quote, She claims that she wasn't the only one out there. I would see people. I'd ask for help and they'd act like they didn't even hear me, says Ortega. She remembers them looking right at her and not saying a thing. These people were hiding in bushes. They were weird people, very weird. I suppose that she could have had some toxic ingestion that may have caused a hallucination, but you know she's been very consistent with that story. And today in her mental examination, she seems very oriented and appropriate in conversation, says Dr. John Sorg of North Arkansas Medical Center. A September 27th article on NewsOK.com had the following description of what Linda was wearing. Ortega was wearing a t-shirt, jeans, and flip-flops. When she started her hike, she quickly lost the flip-flops. To survive, she ate watercress, nuts, and berries, and drank water from a creek. Linda was eventually released from the hospital and made a full recovery. So, and then Politis summarizes here, at the end, he says, there are several fascinating aspects to this disappearance. And yes, there are, and this, this is where it gets really interesting as he reiterates, Linda reported seeing people hiding behind bushes. These people supposedly looked right through her and ignored her pleas for assistance. 
It's interesting that Linda stated that they were hiding behind bushes. Why would anyone hide behind bushes when looking at a defenseless woman? What kind of people are living in the woods and staring at missing people? Hmm. Linda stated that she lost her flip-flops. How did she lose the protection for her feet? This is obviously a very common thing. We included the statement of her doctor, which essentially validates her sanity, and that her statements about the incident have stayed consistent. Readers need to understand that Linda's statement is not a first. There have been other women lost in the woods that have reported being followed and even chased by what they described as, quote, men. All of the cases of women reporting being chased in the woods have occurred in the region from where Linda was lost and east along the Appalachian Trail. I refer to readers to the book Missing 4 and 1, Eastern United States, and of the story of Dennis Martin. A retired United States National Park Ranger told a story of a, quote, wild man that lives in and around the park and lives off the grid. He went on to tell a story of how one specific, quote, wild man attacked a ranger. I think it's quite coincidental that this incident occurred within miles of a United States National Park. This book identifies additional clusters of missing people that occurred in and around other national parks. I think it's also interesting that Linda specifically stated that she was eating berries to survive. In past books, I have written about others who have disappeared while they were picking berries. We talked about that with the one young girl, I think it was a girl who was abducted, mm-hmm. and then she said a, a bear helped her survive. Yeah. Really fascinating account. The most interesting thing to me when you told me the story was Joe Ortega's part. Oh, right. The brother, because that was the very beginning of the story. Right. So basically, to summarize, her and her brother go hiking in the wood and they're in their 50s. The brother, a few days later, comes home and there's like, where's your sister you've been missing? And he doesn't seem to understand he's been missing. He's like, I dropped her off at her friend's house. They've been gone for days and he doesn't seem to realize that they've actually been gone. Yeah. Basically, he had what you might call a hallucination that he went back and dropped her off and didn't recall that they were ever missing. This is a common thing we're going to need expansion where people have these, quote, hallucinations whether they're hallucinations or they're being fed these memories, they have this memory that, for example, they'll be in the forest and they'll think that they're home. They think they've gone to work. They think that they've had dinner. They know what they ate. They think they're eating at a restaurant. But once they're rescued, they're like, I thought I had already been home. It reminds me of that X-Files episode where like the mushrooms, the spores infect these people with hallucinogens. Yeah. Like the woods are literally eating eating them. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. So we'll get into the, some of those stories in the expansion too. But so but. the brother, he thought that, that they'd only gone for a day and she, he dropped her off and apparently she was still missing. Yeah. So then they had to go look for her. Right. And then they found her and she was in a similar state. Didn't, couldn't remember anything that happened. So yeah. that's so bizarre. And what's also super bizarre about these cases is a lot of times it's within a two day period where someone already starts hallucinating, sometimes in 24 hours. Yeah. It's like, why is that happening? Yeah, you can argue in cases where they've eaten berries or drank right. from water and creeks, maybe there's something going on there uh, chemically. But if it's, th- there's one woman who we might get to in the expansion. She was lost in Hawaii and yeah. uh, was missing for like 17 days. She started hiking at like 10 a.m. And then by midnight, she said she started having what she described as open eye visions. Yeah. And that's when she decided to lay down in a, like a boar's nest and go to bed or something. Something's definitely going on in, in these parks and these experiences when people go missing and, and report these very strange connective patterns of experiences. Some people think it's infrasound presented by a, a Bigfoot or some other entity, a Wendigo, drawing people in the lure, as Tim would call it, the lure and the trap. And Tim Marshenko, yeah. Marshenko. Great books from him as well. We can interview him still. Um, anyways, this is a fascinating topic, guys. I hope you guys have gotten some compelling, uh, your compelling bones tickled, if that makes sense. Hope that you found this interesting and uh, would like to dig deeper because we have deeper holes to dig, my friends. Yes, and please check out the expansion. It's going to be a great one. Yeah, we have so much more to get into, more along these lines, but also some even crazier stories. Yes. Speaking of things to get into, we have a stinger. Yes, Yes, we do. For Logan. So Logan has an affinity for Chevys Mm -hmm. and for... 
Lord of the Rings. People meet. So you, this is why there are some elements in the snare. Okay, great. Thank you, Logan, for your support. Here we go. Let's do it. Hello, Plumbo. Oh, hello, Rick. How are you? I am not unwell. How are you? I've had better days. Oh, what's wrong? We are out of people burgers. <gasps> Completely? We are at the last, last, last batch. What are we going to do? Well, I thought you were working <laughs> on that. You were supposed to be working on the problem. Oh, I have an idea. I would like to take candidate 198422 away from the human integration project. He's been located for some of the tastiest human meat. Exactly. Okay. Well, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, f Gary's here. Goddamn Gary. <laughs> hey, guys. Hey. Uh, I was in cafeteria 245, and uh, it looks like all of the people meat is out of uh, selection. Yes, we know, Gary. Gary. God, you're so irritating. Poor Gary. Okay, we have more ordered? Is there we are hatching a plan right now to fix this. Yes. Oh, good, good. And you are actually going to be involved. Oh, uh, okay. And the trap is nearly set. Blimbo. Yes? Please dissect your plan in front of us so All we right. have a better understanding <laughs> of how we're going to get more people meet. Yes, yeah, so tell me. In order to perform the functions necessary to create the most tastiest of all people burgers, we need to locate in on candidate 489322. Yes, Logan Satterfield. I, I'm aware of Ooh. his progress. I've heard of him. Do you know how we are going to trap this earthling? Indeed, I do. Okay. We have discovered through our research sources that he is very fond of the comfort and luxury of the 1998 Chevy Malibu. <laughs> what is a Chevy Malibu? Oh. American excellence. And style. Ooh. The all new Chevy Malibu. <laughs> Sounds nice. Interesting, interesting. So he will spring for this trap. I believe so. If we involve one more juicy nugget for his human interest. Okay. What is that? He is also very fond of a human entertainment program known as Lord of the Rings. Really? Which involves a very disgusting human, maybe the most disgusting human, oh. uh, named Orlando Bloom. <laughs> they find him very attractive, though. Oh. Okay. So, so we're uh, going to convert Gary... Sorry, Gary. Uh, what? Into a human... Shut the f*** he will become Legolas. We will convert him in our facial conversion reconstruction. Oh, and you will deceive him. He will be driving the Malibu. Oh, he will think I am. Bring him to us, Gary. Can I bring him to us? That's all you need to know. Can I keep the Orlando Bloom face? Yes. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> he likes weird things. This is true. Go ahead and, uh, if you'd like to, the pot is ready for you. Gary. Okay. Go, Gary. Gary. Get in there. Oh, all right. <laughs> Over here? Mm-hmm. Okay. Get in. <laughs> Should be... Painful.
painful. <laughs> I was going to say painless, but I don't want to lie to you. It's going to hurt a lot. It'll be worth it, though. Think about the juicy burgers of human flesh. For the high emission guy, he's ready. Facial reconstruction complete. He's ready. Send him off. <laughs> Get in the Malibu. That's it. <laughs> oh man! I think that's how people are going missing. It must uh, be. That was, that was a fun one. It was great. Yeah, I laughed pretty hard. Can we just do the show as them? Yeah, for anybody who hasn't heard it before, that's the improv things we do sometimes for singers. It might, might, I don't know if we're going to do them in the future because it's a lot of work. But we do start a lot of the other... The expansion the episodes. The expansion episodes have skits and stuff that's sometimes. True. Yeah. So you're missing out if you, unless true. you're an expansion member. Yeah, we're going to keep doing but those. thank you for your patronage, Logan. And yeah, for those of you who have just joined us recently on the show, we used to do, and we we're going to be starting these up again, the Stingers, which are essentially... If someone supports us at a certain level, and we're going to be reintroducing that tier soon after the break. No, I think the stingers will be uh, individually. Yeah, there won't be yeah. like a, there'll be an, uh, yeah, a la carte type deal. But yeah, so people have supported us in the past. So thank you everyone who's done that and helped us out, helped grow the whole. And uh, we appreciate anyone doing the future. Absolutely. It really helps. Or Bitcoin, by the way, we did, oh, yeah. we did put on for you crypto heads out there. We did put a uh, Bitcoin donation on the uh, on the website. So if you want to keep the whole burning, yeah, and digging deeper with with that special, get us a Bitcoin, non Federal Reserve currency. Bitcoin is a very interesting topic that I've been delving deep into lately. It is for anyone that cares about freedom, yeah, and putting some distance between government and your wallet. And not continuously having the money supply inflated, which makes our dollar worthless and yeah. your spending uh, worth less every single year. Look into Bitcoin. It's it's a very fascinating topic. And yes, you may be seeing a lot more of it in the years to come. Yeah, we I think we might probably do an episode on that in the next season here coming up. Maybe about the whole system. Yeah, because I think people, and a lot of you out there already know, a certain amount about the Federal Reserve System and the you know creature from Jekyll Island, actual reserve banking, exactly like how our system is built, structured, and, and keeps us enslaved. I think it's a fascinating topic. We haven't gone into the conspiracy route in a while, but we may be due for that again. It leads into a lot of conspiracy theories. Theories, yeah, but it's all based on fact. Obviously, right. it's all real. It's all real. All right, guys. Well, thank you again so much for being here for listening and supporting. Oh, and we have thank yous. Yes. 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 Thank yous. By the way, we will be taking a break for the Christmas season. I guess we didn't really say that yet. We haven't we? said that yet. We made that announcement. This is our last episode for uh, season three. Season three. Thank you for being with us. We're taking a brief break, but we'll be back. Yes. Yes. Um, but first, thank yous. Yes. Oh, and we got the new studio now. We are going to be doing more live streaming. Yes. And yeah. Video stuff. We're not quite sure, but it, we are in our new space and we're excited to see you. If you want more video, it's going to be an exciting season John's four. going to do some yes. dance videos, instructionals mm -hmm. yes. for those out there who are interested. Yes, Plimbo. <laughs> <laughs> some exciting things in 2022. So we're excited to have you with us, guys. Season four, 2022, coming at you. That's right. Mm. All right. Welcome to the whole Shane Baranak. Oh, yes, yes. Welcome, Shane. Pat on the back. Shane Baranak. Welcome to Virginia Roman. Roman yes. candle. 
That's a thing. <laughs> awesome. Welcome to Patrick Lanham. Welcome to Patrick Lanham. Welcome. welcome. <laughs> this is crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny, but I like it. Welcome to Nancy A. Jackson. Welcome to Nancy A. Jackson. Welcome in. Awesome. Welcome to Lex. Yes. Welcome to Lex. Yes. Welcome, Lex. I hope you're not complex. There you go. He's a simple kind of man. I hope you're complex. In a good way. Nick Valenzuela. Excellent. Welcome to the yes. hole. Thank you for being here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Welcome to Jason Brodus. Jason Brodus? I think I know this. Brodus? That sounds like a fun name. So bad. <laughs> Jason Brodus. Brodus. I've heard that before. It's like, Brodus. hey, Brodus. Oh, what up, Brodus? It's like a cool way to say yeah. bro, you know? Hey, like, like in the 90s, like that's radical Brodus. Yes. Kind of sure, sure. Brodus. Jacob Smith's Jacob Smith. Mm. Hey, Jakey. Welcome. It's your dog in man form, John. Oh. Maybe you guys should just come up with some better names because they're not really that easy to do <laughs> yes. stuff with. I feel like we yes. could have done better with some of these. Yes. Yeah, we could have. <laughs> Jonathan O'Keefe. Jinx. Who's the O'Keefe guy? He's the... <laughs> I think that's uh, James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe, yeah. yeah. Of uh, Veritas. Project Veritas. Excellent. You are a thing. A spy. Welcome in, Jonathan. These are words that are related to names we're reading. Larry Garvanil. Garvanil? Yes. Garvin? Gargamel. Gargamel. Yes. It does sound like he took the Smurf and put it in a pill. Yes. Larry Garvanil. <laughs> I take three Garvanil before sleep. That is an awesome name, sir. Unless it's Garvin the second and they're just next. Oh, yeah, because look up one above. Larry Garvin oh, II. I, I, I think oh, my gosh. We are morons. Larry Garvin II. I like Garvin. I'm going to stick with Garvin. Gar your nickname is Garvinil. <laughs> Garvinil. We are dumb. All right. Welcome to the new land of Brett. Brett Newland is in town. Awesome. Newland, you've found it. I will make a settlement on you, sir. Yes. That's it might be a woman. Could be. Rusty Shackleford. Rusty Shackleford. Shackle my Ford. Don't let it get away. Now we're in the rhythm. Tracy Haas. Yes. Tracy Haas. Oh, Tracy Haas in the Haas. She's in the Haas. Yes. She is an old friend of the whole. Yes. You know, John, she witnessed some non-humanities in Austin as well. Non-human humans. Tracy Haas? Mm -hmm. Your whole food story? Oh, really? North Austin H-E-B. That's right. We'll get to that story in the listener yeah, stories. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Yes. And finally for today, our last name for this episode is Jolene Lyons. Lyons. <laughs> Bit of lion roar? Welcome. <laughs> I'm intimidated by your patronage, <laughs> Jolene. Oh, that, cuts off so fast. I, know, I should have faded it down, oh, but gosh. it's kind of funny. It hurts my heart a little. It does. It's very jarring. It Thank is. you guys for all of your love and support. We love you and we yes. hope to support you with more beautiful episodes. And if you haven't heard your name yet, hang in there because we were getting through this list. As we mentioned earlier, we're going to pop this tier up when we get the new tiers after the break to a higher level so that we can catch up with these names. But anyone who signed up now or signs up before we get those up, yours will be read. So... Thank you for your support. Yes. And yes, we're taking a break. So you guys, we will catch you on the other side of the hole. Dig it. On Believe Hole. Get it. But, but, but anyhow, but, but the point is...